Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm currently looking for a couple of additional volunteer assistants. Please inquire at unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. On this episode, I talk about a judge who could be a black widow. I go over an update for the murder of Rachel Morin. I discuss a quirk in the finding of three missing men. And I cover a bunch of other stuff, including the murder of two men, including a good friend. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound Live for February 19th, 2024. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. This is Unfound Live for February 19th, 2024. Not sure how this live show is going to go. Kind of uh, harmed my voice on Friday night. I'll tell you about that in a little bit and how I did it. We'll just have to see. But the show must go on, right? Of course. I have a fantastic show for the most part. But as some of you know, uh, there will be a very sad part uh, of the show tonight that I'm going to uh, pass along to everyone. Something uh, personal to me. Uh, just shocking, uh, shocking news. But it, at least a little bit has to do with what we do it here at Unfound and what we try to understand about people, about crimes, about uh, things that happen in people's lives. It certainly has uh, everything to do with that. I, you know, I don't know what we can learn from it, but uh, I do want to pass it along to all of you. And uh, I found out about it, what, two and a half days ago now, and I'm still uh, – it's hard to uh, understand, but very sad. But otherwise, I'm going to do a little uh, panky letter action tonight. I'm going to give an update on a recent Unfound Now episode. Going to talk a little bit about Irene Gekwa, some new uh, news there. I want to talk about uh, a radio station 
antenna or tower that has gone missing somehow. I want to talk about three men who went missing back in the 1980s who seemingly have been found, but it's a little confusing. So uh, I have a lot uh, to uh, cover tonight. And of course, uh, we had an episode uh, that came out today, a special episode uh, that I'm hoping that uh, most of you, if not all of you, will partake in that uh, it's sometime, uh, sometime soon. Before I go too far, I want to remind all of you to give this show a thumbs up, or if you're on Facebook, do what you can. If you'd like, uh, if you like Unfound's content, whether you're a new listener or have been listening for a very long time, always consider supporting the content here by going to patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast or paypal.me forward slash unfound podcast or hitting the join button on YouTube. Or if you are watching the live show as it is and you're watching on Facebook, uh, you can monetarily contribute by hitting the super chat button, which is that little square with the dollar sign inside it. You can only do that, I think, while the live show is playing. We would deeply, deeply appreciate it. So i got a lot to cover. And of course, before we are done tonight, I will pass along to you uh, the episode of The Missing Person, who we will feature this Friday. And I've already uh, edited, really didn't have to really do any editing uh, of the interview, I, I listened to all of it today. It runs not quite two hours, and it went forward without a hitch. I did not have to take anything out of it. There weren't really any mistakes or any pauses or any breaks that the guest and I took. Uh, that's pretty rare, not impossible to do, but she and I uh, did that, and probably because we had very good rapport and she was very comfortable talking. As you know, I am very comfortable talking. So it went very well. So what you're going to hear on Friday is just not one edit in any of it. See, it can be done. I know that there are a lot of reporters that believe you can't do that. You need to edit stuff out and you need to cut things down and everything. But if you plan... And if you know what you're talking about is the reporter asking the right questions and you have a guest who is prepared, it can be done. Don't tell me it can't be done. So there you go. I'm going to uh, first see who is in here tonight. Then I'm just going to cover a few uh, non-serious uh, personal topics and then we will get to the uh, right to the um, very serious personal topic. And, um, like I said, uh, I think that it's, even though it's a personal story that I have, it's certainly relevant, uh, to what we do here at unfound. Hello, Karen and Charlie, what's going on? Good to see you, Charlie, everything. What's going on, Valerie? Glenn coming to us from Georgia. Carrie, uh, the topic of today's 
special episode. Hello, Carrie. I hope you uh, think that that came out uh, well, hopefully. Don't send any hitmen to my condo if you could. Hello, Mark and uh, Jill. What's going on? Um, Crime blogger. Wow. Hello, Anthony. Look at you. Good to see you tonight. Kathy, Shree, thank you for moderating tonight's discussion. Mary Jane from Maryland, isn't that? Mary from Maryland, I guess that makes sense. Hazel, I know from New Zealand. In fact, um, you know, Hazel, New Zealand was the answer to a trivia question at uh, a couple weeks ago at the trivia, you know, the trivia that I play. Uh, New Zealand was the answer, and I did get it correct. And that fact, that's another story probably I can pass along to you regarding trivia when I get to it. Hello, Charlotte. What's going on? Um, Charlotte says she liked the interview today. Hazel liked it. Melody, what's going on? Good to see you. Everybody, thank you so much for uh, everybody tuning in. Uh, tonight, Miranda, good to see you and Hazel giving the thumbs up and, uh, uh, Miranda says I'm on a little road trip to Pennsylvania, but I'm at the Connecticut rest stop right now. All right. So you're listening while driving. That's always spectacular to do Miranda. I have to ask, where are you going in Pennsylvania? Being that it is where I grew up. Um, yeah, everybody's joining in. Um, there we go. Everybody's saying hi to Anthony. That's nice. All right. Um, let's get to, uh, some of the things that, uh, have gone on, uh, the, the lighter stuff first, since we all got together a week ago, played a little disc golf on Saturday morning, except for, Two baskets out of 16. I actually played okay. Didn't mentally feel very good out there. I feel a little anxious. Um, I, I have to admit, I really didn't feel like uh, being there. But it, I told myself, if it doesn't rain, I'm going to go. And it rained on on the way there, but it did not rain during the round. And did pretty well, even though I took a triple bogey on one basket and missed a like a 10-foot putt. On another. If I could have cleaned up those four strokes, it would have been a pretty, pretty decent round. Um, so the other 16 baskets, I guess I can't complain, even though uh, over there, Taylor, I've certainly shot a lot better than that. But given my mental disposition on Saturday morning, I guess that's uh, okay. And on top of the fact that I haven't been getting out and uh, practicing very much. I don't play again uh, until not this weekend, but two weeks from now. Uh, I'll be playing over on the United uh, University of South Florida campus. They have a disc golf course over there that doesn't get played very often because it's only open during school hours. But they're having a tournament over there. And at least at this point, I am scheduled to play. We'll just see if I decide to go or not. But so that's what's going on. Uh, as far as my own personal uh, disc disc golf exploits, but I have another disc golf story uh, that will be coming up in a little bit. 
Uh, in other news, uh, many of you know that on Thursday nights, I go play trivia with my team uh, made up of my brother, his wife, and then some teachers, if not retired teachers, from Largo High School here in Pinellas County. And as if you've heard me say many times, uh, we're pretty, pretty, pretty good. Uh, would you believe that the restaurant uh, slash bar that holds the trivia went out of business? <laughs> uh, last Tuesday night, uh, it was open. In fact, there, they had trivia there. Wednesday morning, it did not reopen for business. And it is now closed permanently. I'm not sure what happened. Uh, did they just go bankrupt? I don't know. Did the owner just get sick of running the business? I don't know. Uh, I, since I moved to Florida in 2011, maybe starting early 2012, we've been playing uh, trivia over there. Of course, they moved locations and they were at the current location for like 10 years. I'm thinking they maybe nine years, maybe 2015, maybe. So they had been at that location. And it was always busy on trivia nights, but other nights, I, I don't know, because I really, unless I was playing trivia there, I really didn't go. So I don't know what kind of business they were doing on other nights, but they didn't tell any employees. They didn't give anybody two weeks notice, nothing. People got up on Wednesday morning to go to work. They got there and it was all shut down. And uh, the place is called Fat Cats. And it was so quick that actually two days ago on Saturday, they had like a liquidation sell. Anybody could go in and buy anything they wanted out of the restaurant, I guess, like they had flat screen TVs and, and you know, anything, I guess you wanted to buy the oven or whatever you could do that. I mean, it was just boom like that. And in fact, uh, kind of funny was that, just a couple days before they went out of business, they had posted on their Facebook page about some Valentine's Day specials. Well, they went out of business before. They shut down before Valentine's Day even got there. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I know who the owner is. I really never talked to him. Uh, I had seen him in there when I would be there for trivia. And I know some of my other teammates had talked to him, got to know him, but I don't think that I said three words to him in the uh, 12 years uh, that I was going there. Just not, didn't, I don't, just never had an occasion to. So Fat Cats is out of business. But what that means is uh, we already have a different place picked out. And it's a place actually we had tried out before years ago, maybe uh, 2016, 2017, something like that. And it's called Finley's. And it's really not that far from Fat Cats. It's farther away from me than Fat Cats is. It's like on the other side of Fat Cats. It's actually closer to where my brother lives. But it's still, it's not really that far. And they do trivia a little differently. So our team will be getting together on Wednesday nights. So I guess that what this means is that uh, when I do the Dr. Telesco show every, th show every Thursday now, I won't be missing trivia anymore, which makes me happy. So let's see what everybody 
is um, saying here. Um, Hazel says, uh, Hanover, Miranda. Okay, that's like in eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, I don't know that part of the state that well. Thank you, though, Miranda. Hazel, uh, trivia bar closed. They did see your post about no notification. Yeah, that's unreal. Poor employees. Yep. Yep. Uh, employees uh, were not too pleased from what I heard. Oh, and by the way, on top of everything else, of my voice, uh, maybe I'll just move on to this now. Um, if my voice sounds a little weird tonight, it's because um, for the first time since last summer, I blew my voice out again on Friday night. I spent um, Friday or maybe it was Thursday night uh, doing some recording of me singing and allowing a couple of my friends to hear me. And went over into Friday, did my exercises, and I just got a little crazy on Friday night, really trying to wing uh, some some high stuff. Not a good choice. So uh, the voice feels better than it did this time yesterday, uh, like when I did the think tank. Uh, but uh, I'm probably going to take the rest of this week off to let my voice heal again but uh if you want to know i mean i'm you know and i'm not lying i'm not exaggerating you know you know that's not me i don't exaggerate i don't sensationalize things and everything but i actually uh i was singing i can actually sing and i know some of you maybe don't even know who this group is and that's fine but i know many of you do i can actually not you know i don't know if i'm ready to go public with it yet but i can actually sing some soundgarden songs now with chris cornell who is known you know as being quite the whaler i can actually hit those notes pretty consistently, although I don't know if I'd want to try to do that over and over and over and over. And I think that's part of what really eventually did my voice in on Friday night. But if you know the songs um, uh, Live to Rise, which is the uh, the closing credit songs song to the Avengers movie, if you know... Um, What else? Oh, my goodness. Uh, if you know that song, if you also know, let me look it up real quickly here. I can't believe that I'm blanking on this. this is kind of uh, Fell on Black Days by them. And then probably my favorite song by uh, Soundgarden is probably um, Burden in My Hand. Pretty close to being able to sing those songs, if you can believe it. Now, not professionally or anything like that. I don't think I'm, but I'm hitting the notes. Little pitchy and things and got some work to do and everything else. But I'm hitting the notes and I'm in key, which I never could have imagined. So 
Uh, of course, I'm doing that in the privacy of my own condo. I don't know if the neighbors can hear or not. But I kind of uh, hurt my voice uh, doing that, but it took quite a while uh, to do that. So uh, still, I'm very excited. I've been hitting the voice hard for a long time now, and probably my voice needed a week off anyway. So to be able to say that you can sing some Soundgarden stuff and you know you, you can see it's going in the right direction. It's, it's really, and I'm really enjoying it, and I can tell you it's really paining me uh, not to be able to practice and not to be able to sing, uh, you know, Saturday, Sunday, and then today I'm not going to be able to do anything even for the rest of the week. I'm just going to, even this tonight is not good for my voice doing the show, but the show must go on. So if you think that my voice sounds, uh, you know, not 100%, you're right. But it was worse on Saturday and it was worse yesterday. So it's gradually getting better. But after tonight, I'm going to have to give it a rest except for recording this episode, which I'll probably do on uh, this week's episode, which I'll do on Wednesday. So, you know, for some of you know Soundgarden, you know the music, you know Chris Cornell, you know how so I'm actually doing some of that. You know, I'm not exaggerating. I'm telling you 100%. So I'm very excited. Like I said, don't expect to hear me singing any of that stuff publicly anytime too soon just a couple of longtime friends who were also musicians i recorded some stuff and let them hear it and and i you know they say they're impressed i don't know would they tell me it was crap i don't know but i wanted them to hear it and because i you know we've been talking about singing for a while all right uh moving on uh valentine's day i hope none of you are sleeping on the couch because you didn't come through on Valentine's Day last Wednesday. I'm hoping that went well for all of you. And speaking of singing, I am going to see Glenn Hughes again on Saturday night, uh, but at a different venue, and I'm very excited about that. To see him, Enough's Enough, another uh, like 80s band, uh, is opening for them. I've never seen them before. I only know even a couple of their songs. Maybe I should brush up a little bit. But I'm very excited to see Glenn Hughes this weekend. And the difference will be he's actually the headliner this time. When I saw him last time, he was opening for Ingve Malmsteen. This time, Glenn Hughes is the main guy. So I'm guessing it's going to be a longer set, some more songs. Probably do a couple more Deep Purple songs and everything else. And I have better seats this time. So I should be pretty close to the stage which I'm also very excited about. So we'll get some video. We'll get some pictures. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you will get to see those. So what's everybody uh, saying here? Um, We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Miranda says, Hanover, about 30 miles from Maryland. Yeah, I kind of know where it is, Miranda. Yeah, I just... I know that I've never... I know Hanover, they make potato chips or something there, right? Right from Hanover, that's that's what they do. That that's probably the only reason I've heard of it. Stitching, what's going on? Good to see you, Stitching. 
How about Ritual? Don't know that song, uh, Charlie. Um, Glenn loves Soundgarden. Yeah, the room, the neighbor did complain about the noise that I was making, Hazel. However, the neighbor's not over there now. And to be honest, I have moved my practicing to daytime. So nobody has any rights to complain now. Is it worth hoarding your voice for? Um, doing the show. Yeah, I, I, the show. Uh, Unfound always comes first, Hazel. And uh, voice, it'll heal. It'll be fine. I, I'm not too worried about it. Um, but, you know, I do, I'm really, really enjoying it. And uh, these are, I'm doing, I'm singing a lot of songs that I never thought that I would even have a chance to do. And so that only makes me want to practice more. It makes me very eager. And, but sometimes you just have to back off and, and take a break. And maybe that's what my body was telling me reaching those difficult notes. Well, uh, it's the music that I like Hazel. So yeah, I am going to have to sing those notes. Um, because I got into this because I was always, um, you know, a lot of the music that I've liked for a long time, the singers are just superstars. They have ranges that, uh, you know, you just don't get to their range and their quality of singing by taking uh, a few months of singing courses. They're very experienced in how to take care of their voices. They're trained, even though they were, you know, hair bands and they were, you know, they're rock and rollers and they were doing all these things and debauchery and everything that we usually associate with rock and roll. The fact is, is that they were all actually very, very skilled musicians. And it bothered me for a long time that I, I listened to all this music. I love it, but a lot of it I couldn't sing. I'd have to sing it like in falsetto or an octave down or whatever. And it, it just finally got to me. And I said, I wonder if I can sing like these people. So I started taking these on, this online course last year. And I'm finding out, you know what? I probably can, but it's going to take a while. And I'm patient. Marty, what's going on? Uh, Mary, hey, glad to, I'm glad you caught it live. Thank you, Mary. What's going on? So, Emily, what's going on? Good to see you. So, uh, yes, it is uh, worth it, uh, Hazel. You got to test yourself. You got to find out where your limits are. And um, it, it just, uh, like I said, if you'd have told me a year ago, that I'd be hitting some of these notes that, uh, and being able to on that track to sing some of the stuff that maybe not everything, but some of the stuff that Chris Cornell sings or Bruce Dickinson sings or Rob Helford sings or Ian Gillen sings or, you know, you know, guys that really have these great voices. I would have been a little stunned, but here I am and I'm well on the way. Still got a ways to go. Yeah. Hello, Fairy. What's going on? Good to see all of you. Now, uh, let's move on, unfortunately, to something uh, that isn't as cool as talking about singing and rock and roll and everything else. Uh, many of you know, but I'm going to guess maybe some of you don't know, that a friend of mine, I wouldn't call him a, a, a great friend, you know, we didn't hang out necessarily or anything, but I certainly knew him decently well. 
We played quite a bit of disc golf together. In fact, uh, just within the last couple of years, he and I had played doubles, random doubles, and we had won. We had won some money playing together. His name is Mick Barber Sr. He and his older brother Wes were murdered on Friday morning. So this just this past Friday, uh, the day that the episode, uh, this Carl Pope episode came out that day, he and his brother were murdered. And if that's not shocking enough, Mick Barber Sr., who I knew, I would see him at tournaments. Uh, just to give you an idea, when I went to Illinois in 2022, remember I went to Illinois and played. I stayed with my buddy Dave. Mick was also at that tournament, I believe. I mean, he would really go and play all these big tournaments, but he would also play here locally, play at the club on Sunday mornings, play doubles on Tuesday evenings over at Taylor. Played a lot of disc golf, way more than I do. Uh, But that's not just the shocking part that he and his brother were murdered. Uh, Mick Sr. and Wes were murdered by Mick's son. And so I'm going to uh, read this article. It was, uh, they wrote an article about Mick uh, and his brother. His brother actually is from Kentucky and is, it'll be in the article here. Uh, And I didn't find out about this. I didn't find out on Friday. I didn't find out until after I played that round of disc golf over at Taylor on Saturday morning. And the thing is, I knew Mick's son as well, although I did not know him as well as I knew Mick Sr. So when we go through this, it'll be like senior and junior. The Barber brothers were supposed to go on a cruise. They had been planning for it for 10 months, 10 days to the Virgin Islands. They were scheduled to leave Friday. But James, quote unquote, Mick, everybody called him Mick. Mick Barber Sr., 61 years old, and Wesley Barber, 62, didn't show up for the location, didn't call, answer calls or texts. Their family got worried and called the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office. That's where I live, Pinellas County. They told deputies, family told deputies they were concerned because Mick Sr.'s son had a history of mental health issues and there was at least one gun in the house. When deputies arrived at Mick Sr.'s house on Smoke Tree Court, which is not far from where my brother and his wife live, in unincorporated Largo that day. They found his vehicle in the driveway, and the car trunk was open. Something that looked like blood was pulling under the front door. Like I said, this is a news article. Inside, they found the brothers dead, both shot multiple times. Surveillance camera audio captured shots at 6.07 a.m. Um, uh, I think this was on Friday. According, I think that's a misprint. According to the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office, Mick Sr.'s son, James McKinley Mick. So their real first names, birth names were James, both of them, but everybody just called them Mick for whatever reason. Junior could then be hurling F.U. F-U, dead A-S-S, don't give it F, bro. You could, was on this audio. So it's audio, not video. I don't know what was actually on the video. 
The 28-year-old son and nephew left the house before deputies arrived. Hillsborough deputies arrested him Saturday in Tampa, where he's being held without bond and two counts of first-degree uh, murder. Um, it says a stellar player who always cheered you up. You played disc golf, you'd want Mick Barber on your team. Totally true. Not just because he was a pro who could help you win, but because he cheered for everyone, even his opponents, boosted morale, and was relentlessly positive. Totally true. It didn't matter what mood you were in. He'd always cheer you, uh, cheer you up, said Josh Smith, a friend who helps run Oldsmar Disc Golf Club, which is up that direction, northeast of me. He brought so many people into the sport and taught them he was full of life always. Sunday morning, more than 40 disc golf players gathered at the course in Oldsmar in Chile Rain to play a golf game in his honor to support each other and grieve. I was not there. Barber, his son, and brother often played disc golf together. You should know something. Mick Sr. and Mick Jr. were not, like, estranged. They often played disc golf together, and this is what, you know, it's, once again, shocking. They very much seem to get along, Smith said. I never saw any conflict. I don't know what happened. It definitely surprised everybody. Mary Christie Deal, Mick Sr.'s girlfriend of more than six years, said Sunday she was still in shock. She had briefly lived with Mick Sr., the love of my life, but things didn't go well with Mick Jr., she said. I knew he had problems, but I never thought he'd do that to his dad. Mick Sr. always tried everything in his power to help him. He never got bad. He loved him. I know he would have rather had Mick Jr. do that to him than to himself. And here's the part that I did not know. About six months ago, uh, the girlfriend said Mick Jr. had been taken into protective custody under Florida's Baker Act a law used to involuntarily commit people deemed a danger to themselves or others. When he was released, the girlfriend said, senior's girlfriend, that's when Junior bought the guns. Uh, the girlfriend was planning to join the brothers on their trip to the Virgin Islands. McJunior, who have said he didn't want to go and was going to watch his dad's uh, dachshund. There's never going to be a time when I can make sense of it, says Deal. Mick, seniors, uh, Mick, uh, Mick does have another son. Corey says he's heartbroken like all of us. Now, for Wes, Mick's older brother, he has three daughters and four grandkids in Kentucky. Everyone is just devastated. Mick's girlfriend said no one can believe it. Mick Jr., she said, was angry at the world. In his room at his dad's house, she said, deputies found cards from the shooting range, so targets, I guess. I think he was practicing, she said. A uh, medical engineer, senior, was looking forward to retiring, traveling, walking the beach, and playing more disc golf. Uh, we called him the Flickmaster because he always threw forehand instead of this is this is forehand, this is backhand. Uh, at the memorial round Sunday morning, people came out from a half dozen, a dozen other parks. Everyone had been touched by Mick, so nobody minded the cold rain. In a disc golf community, and they go and, you know, kind of the ritual when a player dies. Uh, Mick Sr.'s friends plan to dedicate a whole seven to him at Oldsmar. He always aced that one. On Sunday, they tossed a disc for their friend. We're going to let it go, Smith said, and just keep going and going. I couldn't believe it. Uh, like I said, I played the round. Nobody said anything to me. And, I, and the fact is, I did see some people who I now know knew but they didn't say anything to me for whatever reason. And it wasn't until I was on my way home that I was going through my phone and I started seeing all these posts about Mick and it's such as can't believe it happened. And he and his brother, it's so sad. It's so tragic. And we're like, 
were they in a car wreck or something, you know, or something? And it turns out, like, I just read this article that something happened and Mick Jr. decided to shoot his father and his uncle. And as it said if uh, early in the article, um, it seems, it appears that now, you know, were they taking the cruise? Uh, you know, there's really only mainly two places you take cruises from here in Florida, either here in Tampa or down in Miami. I have no idea where they were going to be uh, leaving on this cruise 10 days to Virgin Island. Sounds nice. Um, so I don't know that, but it sounds like Wes and uh, Mick Sr. were actually in the process of leaving when this happened. Or did Junior shoot them and then go get something out of the core car and never co- close the trunk? I don't know. Being that it said that there was a pool of blood under the front door, it would mean to me that even though this happened early in the morning, that Wes and Mick were already up. So it kind of means to me that that they were in the process of leaving and getting to the port, whether they were going over to Tampa or were they going down to Miami. Once again, it doesn't say here. I really don't know. But not sure what went on here. I did hear a couple people were saying that uh, Junior suffered from schizophrenia. This is all news to me. I played disc golf with Junior years ago, uh, but he got to the point he was so good, he wasn't playing in the division I was in anymore. But I played disc golf with him uh, pretty regularly, maybe going back 2015, 2016, something like that. Always got along with him. He was very much like his dad as far as I knew him. But um, something obviously happened. I don't know what. Now, I know that I've posted some articles about this, but if any any of you who already knew about this, if you've clicked on any of those articles, uh, a couple of them do show his booking photo. And just looking at him, I wouldn't have, first of all, I wouldn't have recognized him. Would not have recognized him. Because you can go on, his, his Facebook page still exists, Mick Barber Jr. You go look at a picture of him that was taken in May of 2022, which of course is not even two years ago, and then you look at his booking photo. It doesn't even look like the same person. And it's obvious to me by looking at that photo that that kid got into meth. He has he has the meth face. It's kind of you know getting bony, sunken in, and everything. And it should be known that when they finally did track him down, they didn't find him here in Pinellas County. They found him over in Hillsborough County, which is the Tampa area across the bay. And he was at some drug house when they when they tracked him down. When the sheriff's office over there tracked him down and took him into custody, that's where he was. So um, I don't, you know, if he was, he, you know, the thing is, 
Uh, and it's kind of like this, this, just this disappearance we just featured on Unfound Carl Pope. And it's even a discussion we got into the think tank uh, yesterday evening on Patreon. Where is that line between mental health issue and and just being on drugs? Because we know there are a lot of people who have mental health issues that don't end up doing hard drugs, certainly. We also know that there are a lot of people who do hard drugs, meth, heroin, who really were not diagnosed with any mental health issues either. And in fact, when they weren't doing the drugs, their minds were perfectly fine. So where is that line when you start looking at somebody like maybe a Carl Pope or a Mick Barber Jr.? And how do you differentiate all that? It's very, very difficult, way above my um, level of understanding psychology and what goes on inside a person's head. Uh, Certainly mental health issues and being high can bring on a lot of the same actions. It's just unclear to me in this particular situation, was it his mental health issues or to blame or was he high when he did this? And and I suppose it's like a percentage split. Which one is more likely that drove him to this? Hard to say. I don't know. Um, But I got to tell you. Being that they had that audio, no, I don't know where the, which way the camera was pointed, but the camera caught uh, what he was saying as he was shooting. And I'm just going to read it again, but I'm not swearing because of this, of course, is a PG rated show. He yelled, F you, F you, dead ASS, don't give a F, bro. So my perception of that understanding the English language, both the, the, the PG version of uh, the English language and the not PG version, PG rated version. It seems this sounds like some sort of argument to me that they were having for some reason at six o'clock in the morning as Mick and Wes were heading out the door to go on vacation. You'd think, you know, it's one of those things you'd think it would be the opposite. You know, what us all as sober people understand about things. You'd think that a son would be all excited that his, you know, father's going away. He's going to have the home to himself. Even if he is into drugs and everything else, you'd think, oh, father's going to be away, man. I can just get to do whatever I want. Instead, Junior's shooting both of them in the house. So I just don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, Like I said, I had no idea that any of this was going on. I did not know. uh, I knew Mick, knew him to talk to him, always got along with him. A lot of great conversations with him out in the course. Um always thought that he and his son were very close. And in fact, he had pictures of himself and his son together on his Facebook page together. But I didn't know uh, this son had been Baker acted six months ago. I didn't know that his son had drug issues. Last time I saw Mick Jr. had to have been within the past year. And 
and probably overplaying doubles over at Taylor on a Tuesday evening. I mean, he was a great player. So uh, I just don't know. Um, I don't know. You know. So let's see what everybody is uh, saying here. Then I want to talk about a few other things regarding this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Mary, that happened. Um, Marty says, my voice sounds better than yesterday. Thank you, Marty. Very murdered. Yes, absolutely murdered. Very, very sad story. Sorry for a loss. I'd, thanks, Marty. Like I said, uh, like I said, he's not the closest friend I ever had. There were certainly other disc golfers who knew him better, who hung out with him more, knew him more personally than I did. But certainly when I would see uh, Mick Sr., we always you know, got along well. Enjoyed playing together, had some laughs. Just, yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, I, you, you should know something. I know a lot of shady people who play disc golf. All right, disc golf, um, just the nature of it, kind of, because it had its start from hippies back in the 1970s. And as I've said, I, you know, I played with a lot of guys who play uh, disc golf, you know, while high on weed. And that's, although that's kind of changed a lot, you know, maybe that's gotten a little bit, in my opinion, for the better over like the last 10 years. But, you know, there's a lot of surly types who play disc golf. And Mick was the opposite of that. And in fact, I will tell you, when I, when I would see Mick, Senior, I would always think of it, you know, he's more like me. Uh, more straight-laced type of guy in contrast to quite a few guys. I mean, I get along with those guys too, but I wouldn't call them straight-laced. But when I think of Mick Barber Sr., I always thought straight-laced. And you should know, he was an engineer. So... But there were certainly people who knew him better than I did. And maybe they knew these things were going on and everything. I, I did not. And I was actually trying to figure out when was the last time I saw him. But, you know, I haven't been going to play at the club on Sunday mornings, which is where he usually is. It's probably been a while since I saw him only because of me, not because of him. So, um, yeah, uh, very sad story. Didn't know his brother was killed too. Yep, Hazel. Uh, yeah, this just happened on Friday, Mary. Um, yeah. Hazel says, "How I'm going to get to the gun thing, Hazel. Uh, how was he allowed to buy guns when he had recently been committed? I. It's a good question, Hazel. Yeah, uh, cold-blooded demonstration. Yep, yeah. This was not a crime of past. I mean, I know he was arguing everything. Yeah, this was not a crime of passion, I don't think. This was, it sounds to me like a kid who wasn't getting something that he wanted. Um, so you played disc golf with a dad or one of the brothers? I'm so sorry. My, um, I played disc golf at one time or another with all three of them. I didn't know Wes that well because he's not from Florida. Um, but he would come down, he would go to tournaments with Mick. So I at least knew who Wes was. I don't know if I really knew who I was, but yes, uh, years ago I played with Mick jr. Until he got so good that he was out of my division. 
Uh, but I played quite a bit with Mick Sr., who um, was murdered. Risky behavior is a leading symptom in some mental health conditions. Yeah, Hazel. Wonder if he wanted money from dad while dad was on the cruise. Could be. Mary, yes, you're right. Hard to differentiate uh, between drugs and mental health. Many of those with mental health issues tend to become addicts and need money for drugs. Decline, and if I can't have your money, you ain't going on vacation. Jill says, is it the chicken or the egg? Honestly, a lot of people use drugs to self-medicate. Right. Uh, Hazel, Kathy says, I agree. Sounds like mess psychosis. He probably been up for days. I was waiting for your opinion, Jill. Mary, so you played with the dad and you've played with the suspect son before, but not as much. Right. And there was, there was a, there's an older son that Mick had, but it was, uh, let's Mick Jr. Killed his father and his uncle. Uh, that's so crazy. I'll look up about Mick Sr. Then yes, the gun shouldn't have been in his hands. Uh, where I was going before was that, you know, I play disc golf with a lot of shady guys. I get along with them. I have nothing bad to say about them. But they certainly aren't me. And when I can say among all the guys that I've played disc golf with since I've moved here in 2011, Mick Barber Sr. would have been one of the least likely I would have thought to ever have been murdered. It's not, it's not even a question. But I will tell you this, though. As shocking as that is, I am more shocked by who did it. And I think uh, probably that's, I think, where everybody is here in the disc golf community. Now, they're certainly shocked that Mick Sr. was murdered, and I don't want to forget Wes. I just didn't know him that well. There, Of course, there are people in Kentucky who knew Wes better than they knew Mick, but I'm just talking knowing Mick as long as I did, playing with him and everything. And he was a really good, should know, he was 61. Great player. Great player. Way better than me even though he's like eight years older. And, but I think as shocked as people are that Mick got murdered, I think everybody is also shocked that his son did it. That's even the more shocking part. So, um, but you should know, uh, this is not the first friend of mine who has been murdered. Um, although I did not know this guy as well as I knew Mick, I worked at Star Trek, the experience with a guy's name was Tom Dishley, D E I S H L E Y. He was not an actor within the experience. Uh, he was one of the character actors who would actually walk around out in the casino, in the bar at, uh, the Hilton where Star Trek, the experience was, it's not called the Las Vegas Hilton now. But it was back then. Uh, And he would interact with the guests and he would be in character and he'd go out there just walking around. It looked, he was dressed up as a Klingon. He could speak Klingonese and all that stuff. You know, these are character actors that would practice to do this. He was kind of an older guy. And he would go out and interact, uh, you know, good guy, like I said, because you. I was within the traction, and he was out there on the floor. I didn't know him as well. I would talk to him once in a while, but our paths really didn't cross that that much. You have to remember how many people worked there. But 
the attraction closed in 2008, and I think he worked there until it was closed in 2008. Me, I left in 2004. But he was murdered in 2013. So he was murdered after I moved here to Florida. And what had happened with him is that did one of his parents die or something? And he got, I guess, some pretty nice inheritance. Like I, I read it was over a million dollars. And certainly working at Star Trek and doing the things we were doing, we're not making any money close to that. But somehow he came into some money legally. And unfortunately, I don't know how, but he ran into a, a couple of people who conned him into him giving him some of his money, giving them some of his money. And he was trying to get it back and they broke into his house one day and essentially executed him, shot him in the head at close range. Like I said, in 2013, they both eventually, this was unsolved for a while. They eventually caught uh, at least a man and a woman who did it. And I think the woman tried to get a retrial. I don't think she did, but I think, of course, I think they're still in jail here in 2024. And I'm hope, hoping they're going to be in jail for the rest of their lives. So Mick is not the first person I've known in my life who uh, was murdered. It's shocking to me. That's not really, you know, I guess, I guess you can never tell, but, um, but everybody thought very much like Mick, uh, Tom Dicely, same kind of guy, very soft-spoken. Like I said, didn't talk to him as much, didn't know him as well, but, very well thought of, got along with everybody. Great, spectacular actor. Spectacular. Took his job seriously and everything else. Shot and killed in 2013. Very sad. Um, and what it also, I guess, means... You should also know this. I now have to – I don't know how many murderers all of you know personally. Uh, I now know – well, depending – at least two, if not three now. Uh, the first one would be a guy I went to high school with. His name was Chris Patterson. He ended up uh, shooting a tattoo artist to death I think in 2014 over a bill. And Chris uh, was tr was a problem in high school, and really, I don't think anybody is really surprised that he ended up murdering somebody, shot the guy. And I I, I don't know if he's in jail for life, but I I, I think he has a long way to go to uh, completing his sentence. Of course, he's like my age, and this happened ten years ago. So there's Chris Patterson. You can look him up if you want to look him up in the Pennsylvania jail system. Graduated from Leechburg in 1989 like I did. Was trouble from day one when he transferred in from another school in eighth grade, honestly. And then, of course, I have to put in there Steve Pankey. Of course, maybe he didn't murder Janelle Matthews, but I've gotten to know him pretty well. So that's number two, I guess. And then number three is I have to consider, yeah, I know Mick Barber Jr. because I played uh, disc golf with him, although not as much as his father. And had conversations with him way back in the day, even though he was much younger than I was. Certainly got to know him at least a little bit. Knew he was Mick Sr.'s son 
and everything. So here we are in 2024. I now know, I guess, three murderers pretty well. Never thought that would happen. Uh, let me see now what everybody is saying. It's so crazy. Um, Hazel says, really shocking situation. Must be such a horrible thing knowing that has happened to someone you know. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, I'll, we just had this huge tournament here in Pinellas County, not this past weekend, the, but the weekend before. Like every, virtually every disc golfer in Pinellas County was at this tournament. I was supposed to play that tournament, but I dropped out because I wasn't feeling it. But a lot of those people were saying, I just saw him at that tournament, played with him. And five days later, his son's murdering him. So a lot of people just saw him. That's like that Sunday before, five days before that. So I was trying to think last, like I said, I, I can't remember uh, the last time I was in person with Mick Seen, just can't remember. But so, yeah, wow, uh, another awful thing to happen. I should be feeling thankful right now. Despite living in uh, in the Cromwell Street Gloves, West Ends of Horrors. Yeah, wow, I had a lot of people you know have ties to murders. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think I'm not the, co- you know, the kind of sending out that negative energy, uh, neg- negative waves, Marty. Um, I was going to mention that the, the meth psychosis, very possible. I know a few people who do that stuff are now on schizophrenia also, and they have very scary experiences. One of them has been sober 20, 25 years on the other, and the other is not sober yet. Yeah. Like I said, where does the mental health, uh, issues end and where does the meth issues start? What is the cause of it? Now you brought up the gun question. And um, I don't know. I I can't answer that. I am a gun owner. Uh, You know, we don't do politics here, but I do believe that people have a right to defend themselves to any and all attackers out there by by the most, you know, to defend ourselves in the most violent way necessary. I believe that, especially for women, I think it's good that guns uh, can be bought by women in the United States because the last thing a woman wants to do is get into hand-to-hand combat with a man. A woman is much more likely to um, survive a violent incident if she has a gun in, in, in contrast to relying on mace or a knife or, uh, you know um, – kicking the guy in the nuts or whatever else. The last thing a woman needs to do is allow uh, a man to get closer to her to overpower her. The good thing about guns is they are weapons from a distance. You do not have to be close to somebody to hurt somebody. And this is a real advantage for women if men want to attack them. So I believe all that. I know people think differently. I'm not here to get into the argument. Uh, on this, and I know a lot of uh, a lot of other countries think differently. I get it. Um, but what's clear to me, uh, I don't know why or how he was able to buy the guns. But here's what I'm pretty sure of: the reason I think he bought those guns is because he bought them right after he was Baker acted the first time. I'm guessing he bought those guns because he wasn't going to allow that to happen to him again. 
that if somebody came to get him and take him away, he wasn't going back. That's what that says to me. That's that's how I define the timing. Um, you know, when I bought my bought my first gun in the beginning of 2016, the gun that is sitting uh, right over there, by the way. Um, my Glock 19. Yes, you have to fill out the paperwork, and I. I thought something on there was about mental health and everything. And you have to, re- you have to fill that out. I think every time after that, pretty sure it's been a while. And it's been a little while since I bought my last gun, but I realized that when these things happen, whether it's something like this or there's a school shooting or something like that, a lot of calls in the United States, we need to take these guns away. But what I would say is that everybody else who is sane and law-abiding should not bear the responsibility of people who aren't, of extreme people. I guess in other words, what I'm saying is taking my guns away does not make the world safer. It makes me less safe. It makes me less safe. That's a fact. For those people out there, like a Mick Jr., who lose their minds. Taking my guns away as a law-abiding citizen who is sane does not make, does not make the world any safer. So, um, are they going to look into this? I don't know where he bought the guns. I have no idea. Are they going to look into the legality? Was this some sort of illegal purchase or something? I think it's worth looking into. I don't, you know, it's not going to bring Mick Sr. and Wes back. But uh, as I continue to say, as, as we've talked about on Unfound, not just in the United States, but seemingly everywhere in the world, mental health issues are going up. And it, I think it's a combination of reasons, but there's... I guess we could say that there is some relationship between mental health issues and addiction. Because addiction's going up. I don't think we should be surprised that mental health issues are going up. The mental health issues are going up should not surprise us then that, that addiction is going up. And in addition to that, we have a suicide rate. You know, I've been looking more into this is that it's not as drastic a change as I thought from the time that I was born. But uh, the suicide rate in the United States is not good. I don't know. I mean, of course, we wish it were zero. But for uh, the situation that we are in in the United States and everything, I think that suicide is being driven. Uh, by a lot of these other issues that we just don't seem to have, we don't have seem to have a handle on them. So, and in addition to that, we have a bunch of people out there who want to commit suicide, but don't have the guts or whatever to do that. Or they may be a you know a believer of religion. Well, if I do this, then I'm going to hell. If you believe in that type of thing, 
And so what do they do? They take a gun, they go out into the street, point it at people and hoping they get shot. You know, they, they, the cops show up, they run out there with a gun, cops shoot them, they're dead. So, you know, of course, we know what we call, it, at least in the United States, suicide by cop. And this actually makes these people, I think that's the reason they do it. They're afraid to commit suicide themselves, so they get somebody else to shoot them. So, um, but this is certainly not what happened here. Uh, the fact is, is that Mick Jr. shot his dad, he shot his uncle, and he fled the scene. And I'm guessing had they not tracked him down over in the Tampa area, I don't think Mick Jr. was going to turn himself in. Or as you should know, my my ex-classmate Chris Patterson, when he shot that tattoo artist, he waited there. Somebody called 911 and he stayed there. Now granted, he was guilty, he went to jail and everything, but he didn't flee the scene and I give him credit for that. I don't like him, I never liked him. Horrible, horrible guy. But I give him credit that he shot that guy and didn't flee. He just waited there for the cops to show up and they took him into custody. I'll give him credit for that. Whereas Mick Jr. fled the scene. So, uh, just sad. I just, um, I am. Um, let's see here. Uh. Sheree, yes, you do in Texas. Mental health, medication, use treatment, confinement, are checks. Yeah, it's crazy. The people, not the guns. I came over here, y'all. I was only a viewer on Facebook. Yeah, we need to do something about getting more Facebook users. I agree, Mary, uh, for this. Exactly, Sherry. should be mandatory. Uh, I think mental health needs to be made more of a priority in the world. Charlotte, Ed, did you hear about the grandfather in San Bernardino accidentally backed into a woman's car when he's backing out? Of a Walmart parking lot. Yeah, and, and the woman shot him and took off. I did see that story, Charlotte. I did see that story. I did see that and almost can guarantee that that woman shouldn't have had a gun either. Mark, after something like this, people always say how they could have got a gun. doesn't really matter how they got it. They would have found an legal way. That's my thinking. Once again, we're done. We're trying not to do politics here, Mark. Uh, I will I will just talk for myself in my own possession of guns. Taking my guns away does not make the world any safer. Uh, um, Carrie says mental health funding is seriously lacking in a lot of places. Yep. Uh, not enough resources in the UK and New Zealand. Um, Mary says, I think this was mental health and addiction combined. And I both are such big problems. They fuel one another. Fairy, well, unfortunately he didn't like being locked up against his will for mental health reasons, but now spend the rest of his life up. Two good men are dead. Yeah. You know, what I don't know is did Mick senior know that his son had, had gotten a gun or had gotten guns or he had one, he had 10. I don't know. Did he know this? I have no idea. I don't know. Um, and I realize as a dad, you want to help the best, best for your son. And and as you've heard, maybe we can even look back at Brandon Barron's. We know that how his parents had a problem with him. I mean, he was making threats against them online and everything else. They were very, you know, um, wary of him. This is why uh, Brandon's father when he saw, you know, the wagon there, he's very, you know, his uh, 
got very anxious about that. And then, of course, seeing Brandon walking along the road before Brandon disappeared. I guess it's the, the same kind of situation. We realize that it's difficult for parents to act in situations like this. Can they live with the fact of our son is dangerous. He needs to be behind bars. He needs to get the help he needs and everything. But the guilt sometimes overrides that, that very black and white thinking. And hindsight 2020, if Mick Sr., and I don't know what he knew and what he didn't, but if he knew that his son got even one gun after being Baker acted six months ago, really, that should have been a huge red flag. I don't know what he could have done about it. You know, of course, if Mick Jr. got it illegally, then certainly Mick Sr. could have done something. But if we find out that Jr. got it legally still, this should have been a huge red flag. That, although I'm not saying that Mick could have predicted his being murdered by his own son, but I think that everybody should be of the idea that if you know somebody that has mental health issues, the, that person gets a gun, that there's the, the, the chances greatly rise that that gun is going to be used and it's not going to be used for the right reasons. It's going to be used for the wrong reasons. This, is, this came up to me this is something that was on my mind years ago. Remember um, that movie uh, that was made about, well, who was his name? Was his name Chris Kyle? He was a sniper in the Marines or the Army or something like that. Remember how he was killed? He and his buddy were killed. How were they killed? He and a military buddy were t took another vet who was suffering from PTSD to a gun range. And for some reason, Chris Cow and this other guy thought it was actually a pretty good idea to give this person who had – and I, I thank this person for the service, but the guy obviously had issues. They were trying to be as, you know, nice to him. They were trying to help him out. We know, we know a lot of military members um, have mental health issues. Horrible. They were doing – Chris and this other guy were doing this. They were, it was coming from their heart. They were trying to help this guy out. We're trying to help you out. You know, everything's okay. We want to be your friend. You know, you're going to have to live a long life. It's going to be spectacular. But what did they do? They gave this guy a gun at a gun range. And what did he do? He shot both of them. Uh, you know, I, I... Stupid. It's just stupid. I realize they're trying to help this guy. They feel bad for this guy. Trying to make him feel better. Trying to make us take him golfing. Don't give him a gun. Stupid. And of course, luck, not luckily, I feel horrible for everybody involved. But we're, we should be thankful that the only two people who got murdered there were the, 
were the two people who actually gave the guy the gun in the first place. Nobody's thankfully nobody else at the gun range got shot. Thankfully, nobody else outside the gun range got shot. Thankfully, it could have been way worse. But we have to realize these things. We we feel bad for these people, mental health issues and everything. But we cannot give these people these tools that then they can use on us. No matter how much we feel bad for them, and I, and I, I start to wonder: Is what did Mick Senior know about what Mick Junior was doing? We don't know. But if he did know that his son had a gun, that should have been a huge red flag. Should just, um, you know, this is one of those things where. You know, um, I I know you didn't make – I'm not – yeah, like I said, Mark, uh, I know you didn't make a political statement, but uh, we know how quickly this can go off in that – it's my job, of course, to uh, lead the discussion, but I'm just not going to go in that direction. I I get it. Uh, Generalities. I just – Give the thumbs up. Hope everybody. Yeah, please give this video a thumbs up as you're watching tonight. Talking about, of course, disappearance is a very serious topic. Uh, but murder and mental health and addiction and how people get guns and everything is certainly a, a very important topic too. And here it is hitting close to home for me, you know, for me. Uh, at that point, what can you do? It's a time bomb waiting to go off. Great movie, sad story. You know, yeah. You know, so I don't know. Uh, I have motive. It seems to me that given what the words that he said, that it was some sort of, he was like what we might say in his right mind. Um... Might have had something to do with money. You know, they're leaving and he wanted some money and he wasn't going to give them to him. That might have been all it took. It doesn't sound to me like he was delusional. This doesn't sound like it was an argument about how he wanted to go on the cruise too. um, They didn't want to let him or something. It it just sounds to me like, or maybe Mick said to him, you know, uh, I'm not allowing you to stay here while we're gone because of what you're doing. Could have been that. We may know. We may never know. I really don't know. I don't know. So that's that topic. Uh, You know, Mick uh, Sr. and uh, Wes, I hope you rest in peace. Uh, You know, I'm not here to get anybody in any person's belief system or anything else. But if there is an afterlife, uh, whatever it is, uh, I hope it's a peaceful one. Uh, for both of them. I just can't imagine. Uh, of course, I don't have kids. But I can't imagine uh, raising a child, seeing that child being born. Raising that child and doing all these great things with this child and everything. And then looking at your own son and he's pointing a gun at you and he pulls the trigger. I just just don't know. I don't know. So there's that. 
Um, like the crumbly situation. I think they were trying to get their son what he wanted so he could develop his interest into a hobby to make him happy, but just failed him mentally in so many ways. All right, so that's that topic. Uh, everybody, I hope you just remember, uh, I, I linked to the article regarding Mick and his brother Wes. It's in the discussion group uh, on Facebook. I hope that you will go and read it and learn a little bit about both of them. Of course, I read it, but I hope you will take some time, go read it for yourself. And um, I, I know here within Pinellas County, uh, that nobody, uh, at least in this generation of disc golfers, is ever going to forget about Mick Sr. And I'm guessing Wes, nobody's ever going to forget about Wes, uh, where he is from uh, in Kentucky. Moving on, uh, the Carl Pope poll. Of course, this was past Friday, and uh, like I said, kind of the same situation. We had a a guy who had an addiction and had mental health issues. And even in his situation, uh, he had pulled a knife on his mother. People were, you know, were very afraid of him and everything. Uh, between the discussion group, the think tank, and myself, uh, we all agreed that most likely Carl Pope caused, caused his own disappearance. That this was probably a situation like maybe like Robbie Hurt or Noah Davis. He was high, walked off. Never to be seen again. Um, not sure what to make of his debit card or whatever you want to be call call it. Being seen could have been a made up story. It's just hard to tell, really. Um, but being that it seemed to be money in there, then it seems to me if somebody killed uh, Carl, that they would have gone after that money. Given that there was still money in there, just leads me to believe that Carl caused his own disappearance. And we shouldn't be surprised. So what, what keeps coming up in disappearances like this? These people live so close to the edge of being dead. They're just on that fine line, homeless, mental health issues, addiction issues, being out there on the streets, uh, you know, walking the streets late at night. They could just get hit by a car and get killed. They're so close to that edge that we should not be surprised that when some of them go over that edge and end up dead and it's really not foul play or anything else, it's just living that lifestyle makes you more likely than most to disappear. So that was uh, the disappearance of Carl Pope. Moving on, uh, I know if she's still in here, uh, welcome, Carrie. But uh, the, the interview with Carrie came out today. Interviewed here in the middle of January, and it came out today. I hope you will listen to it. You'll get to know her a little bit uh, about her background, um, how she found out about Unfound, uh, some of the disappearances that she's been interested in. In fact, she knew uh, a woman who went missing in her state of Missouri, and this woman is still missing. So she talks about that, and she also uh, Carrie talks about a disappearance, an unfound disappearance that she continues to work on a couple years after uh, that episode was aired. So the interview with Carrie came out today on your regular podcast feed, not on the podcast feed for the live show, 
but on for the the feed for the episodes that come out every Friday. So moving on, um, let's go to what story do I want to go to next? I want to go to. I want to go to the story about these three missing men that were found. Human remains and a car found in North Carolina Creek are linked to a decades-old cold case. In 1982, three men went missing after leaving a bar in Chocowinity, I guess I pronounce it, North Carolina. William Clifton, David McMinnon, and Michael Norman were all in a 1975 Chevy Camaro, but were never seen again. The car found in Washington, North Carolina is the same make and model. I'm going to come back to this later because this is very confusing. But the car was in such bad shape, it was hard to even identify that it was a vehicle at all from being submerged in a body of water known as Jack's Creek. According to Sydney Dive Team Captain John Cook Rose Jr., police began searching the waterway after Jason Serrata, a man from Myrtle Beach, learned about the cold case and began privately searching the area. Serrata told WCNT that he identified the creek as being along the route. The men could have been driving, so he put a remote control solar boat in the body of water to look for anything, or is it a sonar boat, for anything amiss. Sonar footage collected by the boat showed the discovery of a possible vehicle. A car axle was found on February 9th, leading police to start pumping water out of the area to better search for more evidence. When the car was removed from the water after two full days, police were able to match the vehicle's VIN to that of a car that went missing in 1982. Kalern confirmed that it belonged to one of the missing men. Investigators found remains inside the car, but the remains have not been yet identified. Uh, the DNA remains will be, uh, from the remains will be compared to DNA samples collected from known family members of three missing men. However, uh, officials are confident that the remains are those of the three men. This case and endured in the minds of Beaufort County residents since September 10th, 1982. At this time, the Washington Police Department is confident this vehicle and the remains recovered are those of the three Beaufort County men who have been missing since 1982. Now, here's uh, where this all gets a little confusing. Uh, because what I do, uh, as you maybe know by now, when some of these disappearances get solved after years, I go to um, the Charlie Project or whatever to see um, what was written about the disappearance at the time. What was the general understanding of the disappearance when it happened in contrast to now that our remains have been found or whatever. So there are actually three different entries because there's three different missing men, although they were all together, but you all now know how uh, Megan does that over the Charlie Project. I'm just going to read the page, the entry for William Clifton. And I'll be reading this, and I'll get to the confusing part. I think you'll notice it right away. Clifton was last seen at the VIP and now defunct tavern in Chocowinity, North Carolina, on December 10th, 1982. That evening, had gotten a phone call at his home on West 2nd Street in Washington, North Carolina. They quickly left afterwards. His wife thought he was going to pick up Christmas gifts for their two children. I guess not. He was sighted at the VIP with two other men, David McMinnon and Michael Norman. The three of them left together before last call. None of them were ever seen again. 
At the time of his disappearance, Clifton owned a black over white 1975 Chevy Camaro with a North Carolina license plate number DLS-42. Two months later, the vehicle was located in New York. An arrest was made in association with this, but no details about the arrest are available. Do you already see the problem? Of course you do. You're also very, very intelligent. The article I just read said that the Camaro was found with the guys in this creek. But an article from way back at the time of the disappearance says that the Camaro was found stolen, was stolen and finally located in New York. Now, certainly both of these stories cannot be true. So I don't, no, I've not gone to like Web Sleuths or anything else to see the scuttlebutt uh, about what people are saying about this, but that's a little confusing. How can the Camaro be in New York, but then also be found at the bottom of this creek over 40 years later? It's a little hard to understand. After the three men disappeared, police at first assumed they had simply abandoned their families, which is stupid. That's a stupid thought. A report from Clifton's nursing persons file said he had domestic dispute the night he disappeared. Something his wife and daughter say is untrue. Clifton's daughter described their parents' marriage as very happy, and she doesn't think her father would have walked out on his life. And his wife was pregnant at the time of his disappearance and later gave birth to his daughter, but her husband was unaware of the pregnancy. The three men's cases are unsolved. And the circumstances of their disappearances are unclear. Well, it seems they all three went out, were coming home, probably drinking and driving, drove off, drove into the creek, and they all drowned in the car. The problem is that the car that Clifton had seemingly was later discovered in New York back in 1982 or, or sometime in 1983. So I, I really, I really don't, I don't know how that can be resolved. I'm hoping we eventually get an answer to that. But uh, I, I hope all of you will kind of, in passing, just keep your eyes peeled uh, for that. If police ever come up with a follow-up article as to, did somebody mess up? Did they make a mistake back in 1982 or 83 about this car? Or maybe is it being that they said they could not, you know, didn't even look like a car when they pulled it out of the water. Maybe it's not a Camaro. Maybe they were in one of the other guy's cars and not the Camaro. That seems what to me, what might be more likely is that, yes, they left, but they were coming home. And yes, William Clifton took his Camaro to go to the bar with these guys. But they actually left in one of these other guys' car, and that's the one that was in the bottom of the creek. And then the Camaro was sitting there wherever it was by itself, and then somebody stole it, not knowing that the owner of it was a, a missing person. That's the only way I can kind of put all of that together. Otherwise, back then, somebody obviously made a huge mistake. Let's see what... Uh, 
see what uh, Mary B. Everyone, watch out for everyone around you. All kinds of ways. There's one thing we can do. I keep eyes and ears open. Got to keep your head on a swivel out there, Mary. Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Charlotte. Yeah, and the assistants too. Thank you, Charlotte. Marty says it was a great interview with Carrie. Um, thank you, Marty. It was an honor to educate as well as speak for the families I help. Charlotte says how strange, and Marty says something fishy about this about this story. I agree, Marty, and I, I like that pun. The car and the guys are found in a creek, and you're saying it's fishy. Good one, Marty. So I'm going to try to keep my eyes on that uh, to um, see if that is ever resolved. Uh, going back to unfound stuff, you should know uh, that there was a comment put on the most recent unfound now for the recent disappearance of Caitlin Alice Massey White. I'm hoping all of you uh, watched or listened to that episode that came out at the end of January. You all be very happy to know that her sister, if we can believe it, I think, I'm, I think this person's lying, uh, but her sister made a comment on that video saying that Caitlin was found. She is alive and she is back home in Ohio. So we have a good resolution to that. She didn't offer up. Uh, the sister did not offer up. She said something about, yes, she really did leave without shoes or anything. But the sister did not get into any more, any specifics or any more facts about the disappearance. And she doesn't have to. I didn't ask her any questions. I just thank you for letting me know. I will let the listeners uh, know. So Caitlin, Alice, Massey White, a young woman uh, who went missing, was it back in November? If you remember, she ended up uh, going to Oklahoma, seemingly got a train ticket to going to Los Angeles. Uh, she is now back home. Uh, she is alive. And so uh, that's as about as good a news as we could expect for that. So that's an update there. And of course, uh, I will try, of course, to remember to do that update when the next update comes out at the end of April, which is quite a ways from now. Moving on, I want to talk about Irene Gakwa. There's a long article. I'm not going to read all of it, but it seems that police are going to take another crack at trying to figure out her disappearance. Uh, this is from Gillette, Wyoming. It's been two years since a nursing student from Kenya disappeared from her home in Gillette, and a neighbor, neighboring law enforcement agency has opened a new and, and unrelated investigation into her living boyfriend. Iron Gakwa, now 34, vanished from the home in Gillette that she shared with Nathan Heitman in late February 2022. Of course, this is a disappearance that we just covered within the last six months. It's also one of the episodes of that missing persons program that you can get on Paramount+. Plus. Heitman, 40, is now serving a three- to six-year sentence in Wyoming State Prison after pleading guilty last fall to three felonies related to financial and intellectual property crimes against her. Remember, after she went missing, he used her cards and ran them up and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and um, just moving on, there's going to be a new investigation opened by the Torrington Police Department, which Torrington, is Torrington not, isn't that the same uh, police department uh, that is in charge of the disappearance of what is her name? Oh my goodness. I can see her picture. I see her picture all the time. 
in my uh, when I go through my files. This is, of course, the one of the. Um, maybe I'm thinking of something else, but I think that we covered another disappearance uh, from Torrington, Wyoming. Did we not? I think we did. So I just can't think of the name I hate when that happens. Should be more prepared, Ed. Yeah, I know. Um, not finding it on the list right now. No, 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 no. Let's see here. I know this makes for terrible. Um, forget when that episode came out. Wasn't down there. I know somebody else is probably going to find it before I do. Renee Yergain. Thank you, Kathy. I knew Kathy would come forward with me. Uh, yeah, Renee, is is that not the same place, Torrington? Could be wrong about that. But uh, following – Heitman was moved. Uh, you know, Heitman said he was being threatened, and so they had to move him. And uh, they're looking – they're opening it all up. And for his part, Heitman maintains his innocence according to court documents and denies having anything to do with their disappearance. He contains that Gakwa left their residence late one evening in late February. He told police Gakwa came from dinner and said she was leaving before getting into a dark-colored SUV with her belongings. Packed into two black plastic bags, Heitman said she didn't tell him where she was going, only that she was unhappy and leaving Wyoming. And though Whiteman admitted to police that he stole Gakwa's money when first interviewed, court documents said he said he did so as a mean of coercing her into coercion. Contacting him after she left. Okay. In the brief exchange with the reporter last May, Heitman said he's innocent. He would love to share a side of the story, but his legal counsel has advised against giving interviews. Of course, he has not been charged with any uh, crimes regarding her disappearance. During his incarceration in Torrington, Heitman further shared in a written letter that he had been moved three times since arriving be, uh, because there had been a bounty on his head from fellow prisoners. In his letter, Heitman said that his first and second cellmates knew who I was before I even said hello. While in Torrington, he said he initially kept in isolation. He was initially kept in isolation, but expressed a desire to be moved to general population. He also lamented losing everything he owns at the age of 40 as a result of his incarceration. Oh, woe is me, liking it to watching a train wreck and being tied down and able to stop it. Oh, woe is me, Nathan Heitman. Uh, kind of sounds like Steve Pankey. Heitman has not answered any additional correspondence since arriving in Rollins. The thing I keep thinking about Irene Gakwa is that, call me shallow, but there's no way that Irene Gakwa could have been really attracted to this guy. Instead, uh, I think that probably, you know, she got to know him and maybe she just felt sorry for him. And as I have written in my notes, do not try to save people by getting into relationships with them. You want to save a living being of some type, save dogs, save cats. Don't try to save people by getting into relationships with them. And I, that just keeps coming back to me. Um, I say, think about Irene being, uh, with the, this guy, uh, he was a, a loser all around. And here she was, educated, attractive, friendly, 
all of these things. And I think uh, that her heart was just a little too big. Pretty sure. And uh, she just, and it very well may be that her heart uh, maybe finally started to shrink a little bit. She came to her senses. She wanted to get out. He didn't want to allow her to leave for obvious reasons. And he had to stop that. Um, so, uh, oh, I, I think that's what happened here. That she felt sorry for him, and then her patience ran out, and he killed her. Pretty sure. And I hope, of course, that they can find her. I'm hoping he was incompetent as hiding her as he seemed to be incompetent in everything else in his life. We can only hope. Of course, we have to realize this disappearance is fairly new. So there's still, uh, I think, a lot of hope to go around that her remains uh, can be found. Now, whether Nathan's going to help do that, probably not. But we just hope, have to hope that he, he was incompetent in uh, hiding her. Gary is unfound historian. Uh, Kathy is certainly the unfound historian. Touring exit off freeway where a car was found. That's right. For Renee Yergain. That is exactly right. Um, here, here, Ed. Save cats and dogs. Don't try to save people. Uh, Charlotte says, or maybe Nathan was threatening her family if she left them. Could be, uh, could be Charlotte. And I realized that at least part of her family were in the United States, but I guess it's a possibility, but I'm thinking that maybe she just thought that she felt sorry for him. And then maybe she started to finally see the real Nathan and it, you know, it cost her. Can't save people from themselves. Marty said, you're right about that. Ed. I've done it before. It didn't end well. I learned though, regarding don't get into relationships. Don't try to be somebody's white knight. Whether it's a female night or male night, I don't care. Uh, do not try to be somebody's uh, savior. And I just get the feeling that that's kind of maybe what was going on here. Uh, I think Irene was being too nice to the edit. I think so too, Kathy. Thank you. So they're, they're still working on it. This is a very recent article. They're going to give it another shot. I give the police all the credit in the world. Uh, fortunately, since this disappearance isn't too old, maybe they can find some electronic data or something that, uh, can lead them in the right direction. Um, some other unfound stuff, uh, as you heard with the article that came out today, uh, I would like to find a couple more assistance as you're going to hear over the next uh, coming Mondays, next week will be Emily, and then the week after that will be Eric, and then Cherie, you go last. You're going to uh, understand that I think all of them have really been enjoyed being in the inner sanctum of Unfound. I don't think when it comes to time that I ask a lot of my uh, assistants. Um, they make time when they can, and I, I deeply appreciate all of it. But I would certainly love to find a couple assistants who have uh, um, a decent background in retail, um, a background in marketing, 
and a background in taking care of a website. I'm still looking for that. And I'm not asking for a lot of time a week. I think that any of those could be handled, you know, an hour or two a week. And uh, I think that anybody's thinking about this that has experience that is relevant that you're going to hear about from these assistants here in Cary today and then Emily, Eric, and Cherie. I think this has all been a very great experience for them. I, I think they enjoy being associated with an unfound, with unfound. I'd like to think that I, I give them all the credit in the world where, you know, where credit is due. Uh, you know, I don't try to say that I'm doing everything cause I'm not. And, um, you know, hope that uh, even if you know somebody, maybe who doesn't even listen to the podcast yet, that if you know anybody that could fit one of those roles, I'd like to talk to that person, if you could. Sheree uh, says that Nathan Eitman's such a despicable person, Carrie. Oh, I don't know, boss. Kind of slave driver. Thanks, uh, Carrie. That really helps. I can't wait to hear Emily, Eric, and Sheree. Yeah, they all did a great, they all did great interviews as well. Uh, regarding Steve Pankey, might as well get to this now. Uh, I did not get any letters from him by this week, by the way, this week. Although, interestingly, uh, the end of last week, once again, I was talking to a TV production company. Uh, once again, it's a production, uh, no, is it a production company in the United States? The guy is from England, but I think the production company is an American company. Uh, however, due to my contractual obligations, I can't be involved in anything they're going to do, at least not this year. Uh, but the funny thing is that in talking to this guy, I actually in so many in, – in a way might have actually totally talked them out of uh, doing anything um, because I did tell them I've already been involved in two productions that are already doing something. And then he was like, oh, really? And uh, I could tell him about one. I could not tell him about the other. Once again, due to contractual obligations. So I think by the time we were getting off the phone after, I don't know, it was less than a half an hour. I think he maybe had soured on the idea of them being involved in doing another, you know, the coverage of the murder of Janelle Matthews and Steve Pankey and, you know, and all of that. Knowing that already two other companies already had things like in the can. So, <laughs> Hey, I'm always here to help. So, um, but here is the, here is what Steve, the letter that I opened last week on the air. And I really had to read. It's quite long. I had to figure out, if I could really read any of it or the parts that I was going to pick out. All I would say is that uh, it's divided into one, two, three pages, seven, uh, seven different sections, all numbered. And uh, in the first part, in, in section number one, I'm not going to read it word for word. But in this first section, uh, Steve is complaining about the judge in, in the trial. His name was Judge Kearns. And in uh, the part two, Steve says that uh, he was always suspicious about 
Of course, uh, as has already been made public, this isn't, I'm, I'm not talking out of school, that Norris Drake's sister actually worked as a dispatcher for Weld County when Janelle got murdered. And Steve can't help but thinking, did they go easy on Norris Drake because of that? Um... Steve is also in part section number three, alleging some, you know, things, some of this stuff might have been racially motivated, uh, including, of course, you know how Steve likes to talk about his uh, homosexual history from the 1970s. That was in part number three. In number four, uh, he continues to, he, 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 he uh, says, as he has said before, that he did not rape uh, the woman back in the 1970s and uh, that he did not have a porn problem as was stated in the second trial. Um, you know, he, he says that, yeah, so I was accused of something, but I didn't do it and I never went to jail. There was never trial or anything else, which is all true. So he's uh, bringing that up. That I, I guess once again, I've not seen the transcripts, all the entire transcripts of either trial, but I guess that came up in one of them. And you wonder should that have been included or not? Are, are prior bad acts or things like that allowed to be included? I guess that it, you know, it's a, I get you know, I guess it's it's a, a question for the judge to make. Um, one thing that he did say that was wrong was that there was a prisoner who testified against him. And Steve said that this guy was released from his remaining 20 years because of testifying against Steve. This is not true. Actually, this prisoner is still in there and will be until at least 2026 because I checked that. So Steve got that wrong. Uh, In section number six, he had a lot to say about uh, Detective Prill, who I actually met uh, after uh, I had met him, after I'd already testified uh, in the first trial, just by coincidence, uh, he and I were at the same pizza place uh, in downtown Greeley. I think he was walking out. I was walking in. Sounds like a Prince song. Um, and we just said hi to each other and talked for 30 seconds. That's about the only conversation I ever had with him. Uh, you know, talking about how, you know, uh, you know, creating false felony assault. So Steve's complaining about that. Uh, and uh, saying, Steve is saying that Detective Pro is a liar. And then in number seven, um, Steve continues to talk about, and this is something I don't mind uh, airing this, is that I have talked to, coincidentally, Carrie about what it would take to get all of the discovery documents from either the first or second trial. I'm guessing I can't get those for free. So Carrie kind of knows her ins in and out of court records and everything. So I have assigned Carrie in looking to that and seeing if it would be worth our while to get all of it. Uh, I've already had uh, Steve's first lawyer, uh, Anthony Vioris, months ago tell me that it's, you know, like thousands of pages. So it might be cost prohibitive, 
but at least I'll think about it because he keeps bringing this up um, because he says that there are a lot of things buried in the volumes of the discovery transcripts. Whether that makes any sense or not, I don't know because I haven't seen the discovery. He may be totally lying about that. Who knows? Um, so that is what um, he says. The only testimony that was videotaped was me, the defendant, at the first trial, and I was called non-responsive when I tried to say what actually happened. My testimony was limited to the Rourke's, uh, Rourke's gotcha questions and my defense discover, uh, attorney questions. So, you know, you know, and I already wrote him back. And you know me, I've been very, I've been just as straight with him. I don't hold anything back with him. <laughs> I mean, he's the one in jail. You know, he had a defense. In fact, he had a defense twice. And he's saying about all these lies and everything. Well, you had an attorney. I realize you had the public defender's office in the second one. And I can even admit, did not get a great feeling from them when I was out there for the second trial. But Anthony Vjorst, the lawyer in the first trial, well-respected. So, you know, it just, you know, Steve to me just sounds like, you know, just any other person who's behind Bart's. Now, I'm willing to admit there, in a, in a country of 30, 330 million people, we have a lot of people behind bars. I'm certainly willing to admit that there are some people behind bars uh, who probably didn't do what they were convicted of. And you know, when it comes to Steve, that uh, he might have done it, but I certainly don't believe that the prosecution proved that. I think it left. Uh, a wide open space. There were a lot of different people could have murdered Janelle, but this kind of stuff about well, you know, there, you know, you know, you know, he acts like he didn't have a defense. If he didn't, you know, if he didn't like his defense, he should have gotten a different defense. <laughs> he should have asked his attorney, "What the heck are you doing?" So, and I told him that. So. That was uh, what I, like I said, I got this between before the last live show, but because it was so long, I needed to read it first. And so those are the uh, sections. Like I said, I did not read it word for word, except like for the very end. But, um, you know, when, it, when he starts complaining about some of this stuff, I, I, I have to admit, even as a guy who thinks he might've got railroaded in court, even though he might've killed Janelle, I just don't have a lot of patience for it, to be honest. So uh, there you go with that. Um, Kathy says, unfound on the ground Wednesday night. Yeah, that'll be for Patreon people. I'll be reminding them. Kathy, thank you uh, for reminding me. I'll be letting all the Patreon supporters and everybody know uh, starting tomorrow. Kathy, thank you. Uh, of course it is broken into parts. Mr. Word salad. That's what Carrie calls Steve Pankey. Uh, and do you think Steve brings up his homosexuality to try to say he's being discriminated against on sexual grounds? Yes, I do. He says the charges are motivated by state and federal hate crimes. My long homosexual history, including being beaten and requiring surgery by a cop wannabe in 1974. Yes, that's what he wrote. 
Uh, Kathy says uh, uh, Steve is deploying diversion tactics. Certainly possible. Carrie, I would actually like to see all involved transcripts myself. We'll try to look into it tomorrow, Wednesday. Thank you, Carrie. He had the option to file infectious counsel, but chose not to do so. That screams volumes to me. Poor me, but I'm not doing anything about it. Yeah. Sounds like Nathan Eitman. Mary, so your mind says that he may have done it. 50-50 chances even, but the prosecution did not prove that. Though. That's how I feel anyways. Um, yeah. I don't know. Once again, if people think he killed her, fine by me. But you know the standard in court is, you know, is there is a standard. <laughs> and when you can't put somebody on that street at that time, you can't prove that Steve Pankey knew the family, knew Janelle, Knew she was home alone and on and on and on and on and on. No DNA, no fingerprints, nothing. At least that was presented in court. That's all that matters. Only matter. I don't want to hear about stuff they collected and they might have got it underhandedly or something else. Only what was presented in court. That's the only thing that matters. They left the, they left the window open to a lot of people who could have done it. Not just Norris Drake, but a lot of people. So there's that. And, and this is exactly why, like I said, I can't say much, but this is exactly the reason, like the last 20 minutes of my appearance out in Colorado when they taped that TV show, that's the little reason, like the last 20 minutes of my being questioned by the director were a little confrontational. Moving on, um, did you read this story? What do we got? Nine minutes. Did you read the story about this judge? who shot her, ex, uh, shot her ex-boyfriend in the head and then tried to convince him that he shot himself. I'm not making this up. Look up the name um, Sonia McKnight, and the victim is Michael McCoy. Uh, you know, she he was trying to break up with her. She wouldn't go away. He goes to bed one night, and he wakes up, and he has a pain in his head, and he has a bullet wound on his head, and then she tries to convince him that he shot himself. Now, certainly a bizarre story, but here's the kicker. Here's the kicker to this, and it's right at the end of the story. I don't have time to read all of it. It turns out that this isn't the first time that Sonia McKnight uh, has had an issue with a, a boyfriend and a gun. McKnight, 57, elected judge in Dauphin County since 2016. I'm going to recommend to Dauphin County that they not elect her again was suspended without pay in mid-November by the Court of Judicial Discipline after she allegedly violated judicial probation from a previous misconduct case stemming from her alleged interference with a 2020 arrest of her son following a traffic stop. Now, here's the kicker. McKnight was also previously charged with shooting her estranged husband in 2019 after she allegedly invited him over to her home to help her move furniture. She was not charged in the case after it was ruled to be self-defense. Now, I got to admit, they better go back and take another look at that. So in 2019, she shoots, I guess she didn't kill him. She shoots her estranged husband after inviting him over. And now more recently, she shoots her ex-boyfriend while he's sleeping in bed. (sighs) 
She sounds like some kind of black widow to me. I certainly do not think that those, those shootings are coincidences. That is crazy. And she, thing is, she was still a judge. I mean, I granted, I guess she got away with it, you know, was not charging the case after it was ruled to be self-defense, but still. I don't know, seems kind of shaky, but um, Sonia McKnight, Google her and, and read that entire story. It is bizarre. I had to include it. Uh, Hazel says, no offense to nuts, but Stevie comes across as nuttier than a fruitcake. Look at that. Hazel pulling out an oldie but goodie uh, saying nuttier than a fruitcake. Look at you, Hazel. Yeah, she's a little cray-cray for sure, Hazel says, about Sonia McKnight. So look that up. And then uh, Rachel McMorrin, uh, they have a sketch out regarding uh, the guy that, that killed her. Also, this crime, uh, assault that he did in L.A. Remember the situation? She was killed in Maryland. But it turned out the DNA from her murder when her body was found matches up with an assault that happened in L.A. Remember that? Covered that some months ago. Well, they now have a sketch out. And uh, they're looking for this guy. And I'm going to say, I think what I said back when this originally all came out, we got to believe that this guy is also, um, you know, probably the attacker in some other crimes that we don't even know about, at least nationally yet. My guess is that uh, he's probably done some of this else, elsewhere. The, the, the tough thing to understand is that the killing of Rachel Morin, M-O-R-I-N, is much different than what he did in L.A. So it's a different modus operandi, which I find interesting. So, um, you know, it's also hard for me to tell whether this was, was Rachel stalked or was this crime of opportunity and uh, was he just hanging out on that path waiting? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Or did he somehow lure Rachel to that location? I think that's also something that needs to be uh, looked at. Needs to. It's an, another idea that needs to be entertain, entertained. Shree says, got to go. Someone calling in six for work tomorrow. I need to get their assignments. All right, uh, Shree, that's fine. We're almost done here anyway. Uh, thank you, Shree, for moderating tonight. Rachel Moran's case was very mysterious. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and finally, uh, I can't read this. Wait, once again, we only have four, a couple more minutes to go. Did you hear about this radio tower that was somehow stolen? Stolen? A 200-foot AM radio tower has been missing for at least a week, leaving an Alabama radio station in a financial crisis and on a desperate hunt. As first reported by Memphis Action News, uh, Jasper, Alabama radio station WJLX, 101.5 FM and 12.40 AM, sent a bush hog crew to maintain the area around the tower on February 2nd. The tower is behind a poultry plant in a forested area. Once there, a crew member called Nay station manager Brent Elmore, informing him that the 200-foot structure that has been there since the 1950s is not there anymore. The towers are gone. There are wires everywhere and it's gone. The total value of the equipment reported stolen is nearly $200,000.
Now the radio station says it will get a new tower as well as a new transmitter. Even if the tower were somehow recovered, the station would still be in a jam. This has affected the operation of our AM station, which needs a complete rebuild on our FM, which is currently off the air. See, this is something that, and you should know, stealing a radio station tower is a federal crime. Remember that. For whoever did this, this isn't a local crime. This is a federal crime. Good luck to you. Good luck to you. This is like messing around with like railroad intersections or railroad tracks or something. Um, Now, what's confusing to me is it's a radio station. Their tower is missing, but did nobody notice that the station was not on the air anymore? It might have been going out over the Internet, but people, you know, using like the regular radios in their cars – Did they not notice they were not getting the signal? Did they not test this at the radio station? This is what confuses me. It took a week for someone to notice that the radio station uh, tower is missing. Now it seems, you know, AM, FM are different. So it seems to me that the FM side of it was still working. I also think if as a thief, would you not suspect that somebody would notice very quickly if you're going to steal that tower? And I have to believe that the way you would take something down is you like chop it down, right? You you take out the legs, it falls over, and then you dismantle it. I mean, that would take some time. So I'll be interested to uh, find out who did this and how they did this and why they did this. I'm guessing that these people will eventually be caught just like um, that Jackie Robinson statue that was stolen and they eventually tracked that guy down did it for the you know the, the copper part of it. My guess is they'll eventually find out who took uh, this tower, but that is one heck of a caper. But you should know, I was looking somewhere. That's not the first time a radio station tower has ever been stolen. <laughs> it's not the first time you think it's like so rare. It's not the first time. Um, what do they say? Yep. Uh, Hazel, 200 foul. How does someone steal a radio station unnoticed? I don't know, Carrie. That's crazy. Yeah, as they say around the world, only in America. Thank you, Hazel. We do what we can to keep things interesting here. Yeah. Yeah, the person has ways and means to get and transport. Yes, it could have went on for more time if someone didn't see it was actually gone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're running a radio station. Their antenna doesn't work, and they don't even realize it. I have no idea. I don't I, I, I don't know. All right. Let's move on to this Friday's episode. Uh, probably, I would say this is one of the more famous people uh, that we have featured on Unfound. It's the disappearance of Elena Carissi, C-A-R-R-I-S-I. She went missing uh, somewhere around early 1994 from New Orleans. She was originally from Italy, and her parents are very famous singers. And Elena is the granddaughter of the famous American actor Tyrone Powers. So Tyrone Powers' daughter is Elena's mother. Elena went missing uh, while she came to the United States to go to New Orleans, and she was seemingly researching a book 
uh, re- doing research to write a book about homeless people. She ended up in New Orleans. She got to know this guy who uh, named Alexander, who doesn't seem to be a good guy at all, but I'm not sure he had anything to do with her disappearance or not. But she went missing sometime early 1994, very early days, December 31st, 93, January 1st, January 2nd. But there's also a story of a security guard who saw a woman jump into the Mississippi River there on January 6th. And that is why this episode is going to be called Woman in the Water. You're really going to have to try to figure out. Of course, she went missing, and she still is missing. But is Elena the one who actually jumped into the Mississippi River? Or was it somebody else? Or maybe this story didn't, this didn't, none of this happened at all. Her friend Mina, who has a spectacular Italian accent, is the guest. And don't worry, she's perfectly understandable. Don't worry about that. So Elena Carissi, C-A-R-R-I-S-I, she went missing from New Orleans in early 1994. And her friend Mina is the guest. And the title of the episode is Woman in the Water. And as you can imagine, the theme of this will be some other disappearances that we've covered on Unfound where people might have gone into rivers. So that's all I have tonight. Packed a lot into this two hours. And I have to say my voice is still feeling a lot better than I thought it would. So I'm glad I was getting – I got through this. We'll see how my voice feels tomorrow. But that's all I have. Thank you all for tuning in. Please give this a thumbs up. Please think about becoming a supporter of Unfounded Patreon, PayPal, or hitting the join button at YouTube. And you will hear me and uh, the guest Amina on Friday for the disappearance of Elena. Chris, you should know over the years, this disappearance has been featured a lot on YouTube and elsewhere. But of course, as Unfound, we do it in our own unique way. So thank you all. Good to see all of you. Hope you had a great time tonight. And what do you say we do this all over again next Monday? Good night, and Charlie, say hi to the kids for me. See you, everyone.